You know, Jesus actually was, uh, a lot of his ministry, if you, if you study the Gospels, happened at dinner parties. And on the last night of Jesus' life, he was at a dinner party of sorts. And in the Gospel of John, there's several chapters which capture what was, what was on Jesus' heart on the last night of his life. And one of the things that you can't help but notice is that Jesus repeatedly prayed for the unity of his people, for oneness. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays at least three times, verse 11, verses 20 and 21, and verse 22, that his people would be unified, that they would be one. This is remarkable because Jesus knew it was the last night of his life. He knew that these were the words that would ring in the ears of his disciples for many years to come. And yet out of all the important things that he could have prayed for, Jesus felt it necessary to pray multiple times for the oneness, the unity, the togetherness of his people, of his church. It was of supreme importance to him. And if this mattered to Jesus on that night, if it mattered to Jesus then, then it should matter to us now. He summed it up perfectly in verse 23 of John 17 when he's praying to the Father and he says, Father, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I mean, talk about a prayer that has yet to be answered. <laughs> that Jesus' people would be perfectly one. For what purpose? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And so unity, togetherness, and oneness and doing life together is not just for the benefit of the insiders, but Jesus is teaching us here that it's for the benefit, ultimately, of the outsiders, that people outside of our community and outside of our church will see the beauty of life together. Every organization or every healthy organization has vision, mission, values, strategy. Vision is why an organization exists. Mission is is what the organization exists to do, and strategy is how are they going to do that, right? Vision is why, mission is what, strategy is how. And at Trinity, our vision is gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Gospel trans this is why we exist, to see gospel transformation, radical spiritual and social renewal and change in every area of our lives. Jesus, start with us, and then in every life in our area. That's our vision. That's our why. Our mission, what we exist to do as a church, is make disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. But our strategy for doing so is what we call our C3 journey. Come and see Jesus. We talked about last week. Connect and be you, we're going to talk about today. And then next Sunday, Pastor Jared is going to preach about committing and leading others. So this morning, we're going to focus in on what does it mean to connect and be you. In a world where it is increasingly easy to live alone, we can do everything online, we don't really need to interact with other human beings to live our lives anymore. In that sort of a world, Christians, disciples, we are committed to living in a way that is both countercultural and costly doing life together, and rejecting all the cheap counterfeit versions of community. And we're going to look at a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he's, he's wrapping up his letter. We're near the end of it in Romans chapter 15, if you want to turn there on your phones or in your Bibles. In Romans chapter 15, and we're going to learn three things about life together. We're going to learn that there is a call to life together, that there is a vision of life together, and that there is a motivation for life together. There's a call, there's a vision, there's a motivation. Romans 15, let's talk first about the call to life together. Verse 1, Paul says, we who are strong, he's including himself, 
we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Wow, there's a lot just in those two verses, isn't there? Those of us who are strong have an obligation, a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak or the struggles of the weak or the shortcomings of the weak or the inconsistencies of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if we are pleasing ourselves, we will not have sympathy and patience with those who are weaker than us in the faith. And then let each of us please his neighbor for his good, not for my good, but for his good, to build him up. The the implication in this uh, passage and in all of the New Testament is painfully clear. If you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot expect to do life alone. You should expect your life to fill up with people and all kinds of people. The New Testament writers had no framework for understanding an isolated Christian. An isolated Christian to them would be a dead Christian. There's no such thing as doing this on your own. There's no such thing as just you and God or just you and Jesus. The expectation always implicit here and explicit in other places is that you will do life with other people. The more, here's one way of saying it, the closer you draw to Jesus, the more you're going to draw to other people. And the more you're going to find your life filling up with people that you actually would not have chosen on your own. That's actually the beauty about church is that when you walked into this building this morning, you had no control over who else walked into this building. There's a Dolphin fan in this building. Can you believe that, Bills fans? We let a Dolphin fan into this building. I, I see Joe wearing his Eagles shirt. Like, I, I know that there's, those, there's a Giants fan who's an usher. I'm surprised Al let Joe into the room, right? We're, we're a diverse group of people with different interests and different passions. There's all kinds of people. And one of the formative powers of local church gatherings is that you didn't get to choose who you're sitting around. And yet God will use that to bring you with people who are weak and people who are strong. And these individuals, according to Paul, they become not just fellow churchgoers, but they should become your neighbors that you now have a responsibility to. And specifically here, Paul interestingly is saying that the strong in faith, which we would consider maybe those who are uh, further along in their understanding of the things of God, I guess, or mature in faith, or, or, or they've been around things longer, they have a responsibility to bear with and support the weak Those who maybe are newer to the faith are not as established or certain about their convictions and their beliefs. They have a responsibility to support them instead of living to satisfy their desires or even pressuring them to catch up with them as fast as they possibly can. But rather, I, if, I, if I'm strong in my faith and you're weak in your faith, I will support you and I will walk with you. And this is not just a luxury or a, 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 this is not just charity. This is my responsibility if I am strong in the faith. And so if you're here this morning and you would consider yourself strong in the faith, you have a great responsibility. You have been gifted, but not for your sake, for the sake of others. We'll see later in this chapter that both the weak and the strong are called to welcome each other. The weak are not off the hook in terms of welcoming one another, but the greater burden is on the strong. In God's household, strength comes with obligation. And listen to this, an unwillingness to forego our rights for others indicates that we are not as strong as we thought we were. An unwillingness to forego our rights, our preferences 
for those who might be weaker in the faith indicates that maybe we are not as strong as we thought we were. If you are strong, your strength has been given to you by God so that you might strengthen others, not so that you might leverage your strength to get your way. And that's why I love the people in this church who are grounded in the faith and have served Jesus for many years because they understand this truth. In most cases, they understand this truth. They don't come to me with questions like, why can't the Sunday morning service be more like the way I want it? I would like to sing for 45 minutes because I'm strong in the faith and I can do that. I would like you to preach on the deeper things of God instead of the gospel week after week after week. Can't we move on to something else? Why, why do we have to explain things every week? Why do we talk about why we give? Why do you introduce yourself every week? Why do we allow people to belong and be a part of our community before they look like us, act like us, think like us, and believe like us? Because the strong have a responsibility to the weak to say, I will lay down my rights to serve you, to be a good neighbor to you, and to trust that the Holy Spirit can do in your heart what I, what I have no actual responsibility to do, which is to change you and shape you and make you more like Jesus. So the goal for every single believer is not just to please God, yes, but also to please one another and to build each other up. And the word please here. So it doesn't mean some cheap amusement, but it's an act or gesture that will meet a real need. So we're talking about practical needs or enhance spiritual stability. So real needs and spiritual needs. This is a call to life together, to share life so that you might serve and strengthen one another. Christian community, listen to this, Christian community is not primarily about you and what you can get out of it. Christian community is primarily about others and what you can give to them. What do you have? So when you show up on Sundays, instead of asking, what can I get out of things this, what can I get out of it this morning? You, you should be looking around and saying, what do I have to give this morning to strengthen others, whether it's a natural gift, whether it's a spiritual gift, whether it's an encouraging word, whether it's a friendly conversation, whether it's an invitation into your home. It's moving from being a consumer to being a contributor. Friday night, I was in the Dome for the Syracuse-Virginia football game, and I was there. A guy in our church has season tickets. He invited me to go. And, you know, when you go to a sporting event, you are a consumer, right? You sit back, you consume drinks and snacks, and you consume the event, and you're enjoying it. But if you're, but if you're a real football fan, at some point, you become a, you become a contributor, and the way that football fans contribute is by screaming and yelling and cheering. And there was nearly 40,000 people in the Doma on Friday night. And the team that played them last week, Purdue, that lost to them, the coach afterwards said it was like playing inside a drum. It's just there's nowhere for the noise to escape because it's a dome. And so it just bounces. And the last play of the game, or one of the last plays of the game, it was fourth down, and the other team was driving for a potential game-winning field goal. And everybody's on their feet, and everybody's yelling, everybody's screaming, and it's deafening. And my Apple Watch is warning me about the decibel level. It's going off saying, it's too loud for you to be here for longer than 30 minutes. It was like a four-hour game. It's amazing I can hear this morning. But as we began to yell and the fans yelled throughout the game, there was at least two times in the game where the other team could not hear each other and they committed a penalty or a foul because of the volume, a false start. And we were like, we felt like we were contributing. We're part of helping Syracuse get this win because of what we are bringing to that moment. Moving from being a consumer to a contributor. 
It's a sign of spiritual maturity, and it's the call to life together. The second thing we see in this passage is the vision of life together. And we're going to skip down to verse 5 as Paul gives us this beautiful vision of what the church should look like. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now, just I want you to look at that phrase for a second. Paul is talking about what he expects the outcome to be, harmony with one another. But look at what characters of Jesus or what characters of God he focuses on, endurance and encouragement. You know why? Because he knows this is hard work. Living in harmony with each other is very hard, whether it's in your home, in your marriage, at your workplace, in your schools, on the sports team, or as a church. Living in harmony is very difficult, and Paul knows that, and that's why he says, don't forget, God is the God of endurance, keep going, and encouragement. When you're struggling, he will lift you in accord with Christ Jesus. Verse six, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of everything that he said so far, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's three phrases that Paul says here that gives us a vision of life together. The first one is live in harmony with one another. He doesn't say visit in harmony with one another. He doesn't say show up once a week in harmony with one another. He says live. He expects Christian community to be intertwined in ways that go far beyond one hour on a Sunday morning. And my question to you this morning is, is, if this is your home church, if this is where God has planted you to grow and to serve, are you actually living with each other? Are you doing life with each other? Are you intertwined in a way with other people? Maybe you can't do it with everyone, but with some, that you would say, life, my life is being regularly shared with them, and that's much more than, good morning, how was your week? Good to see you. Living with one another, to live in harmony. Now, harmony speaks of unity. We said this earlier this year in our annual business meeting, unity, but not uniformity, right? Those are two different things. Unity, same heart, same mind. Uniformity is everybody has to be the exact same. We're not going to be the exact same on everything. So unity, not uniformity. And the emphasis here, according to one of the commentaries, is not that we see eye to eye on everything, but rather that we regard one another with minds that are filled with and focused on the Lord as we follow Jesus, live in harmony with one another. The second phrase is together with one voice, glorify God. This is a very interesting phrase Paul uses here. Together with one voice, glorify God. It's a unique Greek word that is only used a few other times in the book of Acts. I'm not gonna try and pronounce the word, but it's a compound of two words. One word means to rush along, speaking of forward motion and quickness, and the other one speaks of, means the words in unison. So put those two together, to rush along in unison. The image is actually musical. Uh, a number of notes which are sounded together in motion that harmonize in pitch and in tone. It's, it's a fast song where the music all works together. That's what it means here when Paul says, together with one voice glorify God. As the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a conductor, so the Holy Spirit wants to blend our lives together so that together our lives with one voice move forward in harmony to glorify God. And then Paul says this, therefore, welcome one another for the glory of God. Now, if you keep reading beyond our text this morning in Romans 15, 
Paul goes on to give examples of how Christ has welcomed both the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. It becomes the illustration for this truth that Jews and Gentiles now are to welcome one another where previously they would not have done so naturally. Now, because they are united in Christ, they welcome one another for the glory of God. And this is what you and I are called to, is to welcome one another regardless of our differences. This means to cultivate, this is how one of the commentaries says it, to cultivate open hearts toward others who have markedly different convictions, though still within the circle of apostolic biblical teaching in the church. So while there is a biblical teaching circle that we will fight for and defend as a church because of our doctrine and our beliefs, there is outside of that circle various convictions uh, and passions and interests that people might have. And this is to welcome one another regardless of those differences. Oh, you're very passionate about this. I'm actually not, but I love you, and you're my brother, and you're my sister. Oh, you live out your faith in that way. I live it out in this way, and it's, there's room for that because there's Christian liberty and Christian conscience. And so we're talking about things that go beyond the biblical circle of what is decidedly true, the way in which we live out our faith. There is um, room for us to be welcoming of one another. And this idea of welcoming one another for the glory of God also speaks of hospitality. I mean, I want to honor our dinner party host. It would be easy. Uh, Pastor Antonia and Bethany, who works in the office, they've been reaching out to people for the last couple of months about hosting dinner parties. And I just want to honor the 10 who said yes, because there's a lot of good reasons uh, to say no. There's a lot of work that it takes. You got to, you know, uh, if you live in a house like mine and people are coming over, everybody's cleaning for a couple of days before. Like, it's, it's a real deal, right? And so uh, there's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot easier to say no. But you know that hospitality uh, is actually not just a personality trait. But hospitality is a Christian characteristic. In fact, if you read Paul's list of qualifications for elders, both in his letters to Timothy and his letter to Titus, in both of those lists, the most overlooked qualification for an elder is someone who is hospitable with their home. This is not about being an extrovert. This is not about being the hostess with the mostess. This is about welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. And so thank you for these 10 who host. I think Josh and Lauren have probably hosted every single time we've had a dinner party. Thank you for that, because that is a spiritual act of hospitality, and it's one of the ways that we welcome one another. I know not all of us have homes that it makes sense to have large groups over. I understand that. And some of us, maybe our homes don't make sense for hosting at all. But there's other ways that we can be hospitable to others. Host somebody for coffee by buying their coffee. Host somebody for lunch by treating them to lunch. There are ways that we can be hospitable that embrace what Paul is saying here. It's the vision. And my vision, our vision, I believe, for Trinity is that we would be a community of deep, life-giving, gospel-centered friends. People who don't just sit in church together and give each other sort of the passing comment every week, but that our lives are so intertwined in deep, life-giving ways that in our worst moments and our best moments, we find each other by our sides. Lives intertwined beyond Sunday mornings, welcoming one another. And the last thing this morning um, is the motivation. And we're going to go back into the middle of the passage. Paul kind of puts the motivation right in the middle of all this. Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you 
fell on me. We're going to come back to that phrase, but that's important. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement, there's those two words again, of the scriptures, we might have hope. What do we see here? Paul's motivation for life together, his basis for the call to life together and his vision of life together, it was not rules, it was not religion, it was not just responsibility, it was a person. It was Jesus. Paul was saying, or Paul was not saying, welcome each other because it's the right thing to do. Welcome one another because you share a religion. Welcome, another, welcome one another because you should and you have to. I mean, he does pressure them and give them some strong instructions here, but his deepest motivation that he wants to highlight is this. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And this week I was reading this, about this passage and I read this paragraph. Just the questions stopped me in my tracks. How did Christ welcome you and me? How has he welcomed us? He welcomed us with our many sins, prejudices, and innumerable blind spots. He welcomed us with our psychological shortcomings and our cultural naivete. He welcomed us with all of our problems. He even welcomed us with our stubbornness and our unwillingness to welcome others. And this is how we are to welcome one another. Since Jesus Christ lived for the Father's pleasure and not his own, then we as his followers have the resources through faith to please God by seeking to please our neighbor and not please ourselves. How did Christ not please himself? Well, the evidence is strongest at the cross. Could the whips on your back please yourself? Could the nails going through his hands have pleased him? Could the weight of the sin and the shame of the world crushing his soul please any man, the separation, the same. Isaiah 53, three says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not, which means we, our reproaches towards Jesus, he took upon himself. That's what Paul is saying here when he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is saying, God, those who have rejected you and hated you, rejected and hated your people, refused to be called to this life together, those reproaches towards you will now fall on me. And he went to the cross where the sins of the world fell on him. I'm gonna ask the band to join me. Are you having trouble with this message, this idea of life together? I know there's good reasons to have trouble with this. Some people have been hurt by community, have been hurt by church. I understand that. There's a long history of us not getting it right, the capital C church. But if you're having trouble loving and serving others, here's what you do. You see Jesus doing the same for you, loving you. And so, Are you having trouble committing yourself to other people? We'll see Jesus committing himself to you. He didn't commit himself to you because there was something lovely or worthy about you. He committed himself to you because he didn't please himself. He pleased his father, and he served you in that way. There is a call to life together. There is a vision of life together, and there is a motivation for life together.